It's Friday, March 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. COVID-19 continues to spread, and this time we take a look at New York, which has at least 22 cases. Most of the new cases in New York are the result of community spread and are tied to a lawyer in Manhattan who has underlying respiratory issues. He infected his family, then a neighbor, then friends, and it has led to about 1,000 people self-quarantining. In the meantime, New York continues to monitor and test those who are at risk of having contracted the virus. Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for more on the COVID-19 spread. Next, some lighter fare. It's hard to beat that multi-sensory experience of eating something nice and crispy. The sight, the taste, the feel, and especially the sound. We will talk about the entire industry dedicated to making foods crispy and crunchy. Think of crispy chips and crunchy chicken sandwiches. We'll talk about how companies perfect recipes for mass production, and beyond that, how they also market crispiness through sound and looks. Alex Beggs, writer at Bon Appetit, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. We have a new a new count of an additional 11, so that's 22 statewide. Uh, eight of the new cases are connected to the attorney from Westchester, the New Rochelle area. Uh, two are in New York City, and one is on Long Island. The two in New York City uh, are hospitalized. The one in Long Island is also hospitalized. Joining us now is Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about the coronavirus in New York. The New York cases have jumped up to 22 total cases. And in this case right now, it's being called a community spread. This was the concern what was happening in Washington. A lot of cases were popping up around that nursing home there. Now on this side of things in New York, we have this community spread happening. It's actually led to about a thousand New Yorkers there self-quarantining for worries about spreading it a little bit more. Ben, tell us how this all happened in New York. So the community spread has been identified uh, with a 50-year-old attorney who works in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, he is part of a close-knit community in Westchester, New York, uh, where he attends synagogue. His children go to Jewish schools in the area. Uh, and so those are the ones that have been uh, led to self-quarantine. So uh, fellow members of the synagogue he attends, classmates of his children who go to these schools have decided to self-quarantine at home. So the officials estimate about a thousand people roughly in, in Westchester affiliated with, with some of these public uh, meeting places have self-quarantined. So help walk us through how this happened, because from my understanding, this lawyer, he does have an underlying respiratory condition. So he's in the hospital but what happened was that there was a bar mitzvah and there was also a funeral where I think the funeral was for a founder of, of the synagogue there. That's why there were so many people in attendance. But explain to us what happened with the doctor. I, my understanding was it was like the doctor. Then it was his uh, wife and kids and then a neighbor. It helped walk us through that. Yeah. So um, the New York City has disease detectives, they call them, and they try to find every link every possible link between someone uh, who might have come into contact. So we have this 50-year-old attorney. He, as you're exactly right, he has an underlying respiratory illness. And that's one of the demographics that can't, 
can be severe for this disease. So for most people, it's going to be okay. But in this case, uh, he had an underlying respiratory illness. So he had a neighbor drive him to the hospital um, where he's currently in stable condition. Uh, But then the neighbor tested positive. Uh, The attorney's wife, who works at the Midtown Manhattan law firm with him, she tested positive. Uh, Their two children did. Uh, And then as more testing was done, as these links were investigated, then that number started to rise of positive tests. A family friend tested positive, that friend's wife tested positive, and three of their four children. So, um, and as of this morning, I don't know the specifics of the individuals, but uh, in addition to those folks I just mentioned, eight other individuals with some community ties to this attorney have also tested positive. In all of those cases, they're home, they have mild or they're asymptomatic, they're not expressing symptoms, and they're staying at home. Well, yeah, at least that's the good news there. And now comes the response after that. Obviously, there are, a lot of them are self-quarantining, but rabbis throughout New York City are adjusting some of the customs of the traditional Jewish culture there. They're telling people not to touch and hug so much, things like that. We, you know, We just talked about L.A. and their response declaring a health emergency and how they're getting started with it. And, you know, they brought up this whole thing of social distancing. You got to keep your space, all Mm -hmm. that stuff. And and this is kind of what's playing out here as well. That's right. So uh, the attorney's son who attends Yeshiva University, Yeshiva University has closed uh, classes through Friday. Um, The the son's roommate and a close friend, they were tested. They were not positive. So uh, they're in the clear there. Um, and it, you're exactly right in terms of some some cultural practices. Uh, uh, folks have advised not to handshake. I, I know that the, the elbow uh, bump or the fist bump has been proposed as an alternate uh, way to, to greet people. So it's just trying to minimize that close personal contact that you might have with someone. And how have health officials in New York been reacting to all this? What efforts are they stepping up to help prevent the spread? It's a tough situation with very close-knit communities like this. It was kind of a, a thing that came up when measles were was popping around a lot. It's tough to contain it in very close-knit communities. But health officials in New York there, what are they trying to do? So they have asked those who... who um may have come in contact to stay home, to be isolated. And in every case that a Department of Health official has asked someone to, to be self-quarantined so far, everyone has said yes. Uh, in, in a subsection of those groups, the health of officials will go and check on to make sure that people are staying isolated. Um, but so far, the community has responded um, in compliance with those requests not to uh, not to come in contact. Um, I know that uh, looking a little more broadly, uh, the state is calling back um, students who were overseas in affected countries. Um, and they're also the state is also trying to ramp up its capability to test. Uh, so as of right now, the the city and state are able to test a few dozen people a day. They need to be at about hundreds, as Mayor Bill de Blasio said earlier. Yeah, the testing kits is a huge thing, and it's kind of this double-edged sword. Obviously, we want to know who has come down with it, but with more testing, is going to come more confirmed cases of it, which then again starts causing this cycle of you know people getting even more concerned about, about a possible spread. What's the turnaround time on these test kits right now? It, it can be hours. Um, I know that, for instance, so the um, roommate and the friend of the son uh, were identified for testing uh 
yesterday and those tests came back uh, overnight. So so the city officials shared those numbers this morning. So uh, also as tests are available at um, through private labs and, and other uh, options to do so, we might get a little bit speedier turnaround. But I think right now the availability is is the question. Well, hopefully, you know, in all cases across the country, the cases are limited. The growth of this is slow, but this is the worry. These instances of community spread are the big worry. You know, when you can connect it to somebody that's traveled abroad, at least we know there, but these things uh, are a little looser. So hopefully the numbers stay low. Ben Guarino, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I felt very vindicated because I'm a huge kettle chip aficionado. And when a head of R&D at Frito-Lay said that they find that women really prefer kettle chips to the classic flat chips, I was like, I knew it. I could have told you this, but (laughs) they had the official answer. Joining us now is Alex Beggs, staff writer at Bon Appetit. Thanks for joining us, Alex. My pleasure, Oscar. We're going to be talking about crispy and crunchy Foods and the entire industry that's dedicated to making it happen and just how crazy they go into it. The overdrive of how to cook the food in a way that is crunchy and crispy and then beyond that, how to market it and how to make it sound crunchy and crispy. There's a lot that goes into this. Alex, tell us how this whole story got started. We started thinking about it around Thanksgiving, which is sort of our Super Bowl at Bon Appetit. And we noticed in our Thanksgiving issue that we were just describing everything as crispy and crispy was just this ideal turkey skin texture. We had these crispy, crunchy topping on our mashed potatoes. You need to get your Brussels sprouts crispy edge. And so we wanted to get to the bottom of when and why and how crispy became this beloved food texture. Yeah, I think you mentioned it in your article that you used it around 500 times last year to describe everything. Uh, with- <laughs> okay, that was an exaggeration. <laughs> no, I believe but it. I- but, enough time to count. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, there's so much that goes into food and what makes food so lovely. Obviously, flavor, the taste, the colors of it. But the texture of it is so important. There's so many times you hear people say, oh, I hate that food because it's too gooey or squishy or whatever. But you rarely hear people say, I hate that food because it's too crunchy. So let's talk about that. You spent some time with Frito-Lay. A lot of the article talks about chips and how you mass produce this crispy flavors. Let's take one quick step back because you did differentiate the difference between crispiness and crunchiness. What is that about? (laughs) Yeah, this is something we used to argue a lot about, like over beers. But it it was funny to me that scientists have actually studied this. And there was a paper that explicitly states the difference between crispy and crunchy. So now I feel like I can win any bar argument (laughs) from now to the end of time. But basically what it comes down to is crispy is sort of what the word sounds like. It's a higher pitched noise when you bite into it. It's usually something that you bite with your front teeth. So something a little more delicate. I would think of like a Lay's classic chip as being quintessentially crispy, whereas crunchy, like the word is this Uh, lower pitch noise, it's denser, it's in the back of your molars. So when you bite down into something crunchy, it has fewer ruptures and breaks than something crispy that might break into a million pieces. And you talked about these studies that were performed. Interestingly enough, it's all about the women. They noticed the crisp and crunch more, whereas men tended to notice a food color and flavor more. 
Yes, and when I was at Frito-Lay, I felt very vindicated because I'm a huge kettle chip aficionado. And when a head of R&D at Frito-Lay said that they find that women really prefer kettle chips to the classic flat chips, I was like, I knew it. I could have told you this, but (laughs) they had the official answer. Yeah, I mean, I love the kettle ones, too. The jalapeno kettle chips are are really great. So Mm -hmm. um, those are just tasty. And and going back to that crunchiness, (laughs) that's what you love. Okay, so tell us what Frito-Lay specifically, you know, you mentioned you spent some time with them. What do they do specifically to create this crunchiness and then beyond that with packaging to sustain the crunchiness? Well, each product has its own sort of formula. And well, other than the baked chips, frying is a huge component. They all kind of go through a step of dehydration. They each are created in very specific ways. So Cheetos are extruded, which means they get kind of pushed out of a machine. Things like Tostitos are rolled and cut out almost like cookie dough, but then fried too. So it's a combination of those cooking methods and the ingredients, just the right combination of flours and leaveners like cornstarch and baking powder are crucial. But I think people don't realize just how calculated that is, especially for the newer chips with, say, chickpea flour and rice flour. They're really trying to replicate uh, potato chips with these alternative flours, and it's really challenging. The Frito-Lay is, of course, like master engineers at this, so they tinker with hundreds of types of flours till they find the perfect crispy combination. And then these gigantic missile launcher machines actually are the ones that make them. You know, people aren't cooking them in a kitchen somewhere. Well, I mean, it's got to be an exact science. And to be able to mass produce them, it takes a lot of effort to get that right. And so, as you've been saying, it all goes down to what the ingredients are, the method of doing it, and then replicating it on a mass produced level. Also in your article talking about the industries dedicated to making foods crispy, you talked about Popeye's and Popeye's fried chicken sandwich, which we all know won the chicken sandwich wars, right? Tell us about how they got it done. And even beyond that, you talked to the agency that was handling the creative stuff for how to market it and commercials for the crispy sandwich. Tell us how that went. The Popeye's sandwich is so good. Have you had it? I have had it. It is very good. So a lot of people at the time were like, oh, it's sold out. Just buy regular Popeye's chicken and get a bun and make it yourself. But that's not (laughs) the case. They really formulated an original product here. And it's all in the batter that the chicken fries in. And in this case, they kind of what we were talking about with Frito-Lay, they came up with a very specific combination of two types of wheat. And one is like a kind of a all-purpose flour, like a more high-protein wheat, and then another one's a little bit more delicate. I'd compare it to a cake flour. And those two flours combined to make this extra crispy coating, as well as how long they fry it for, and the leaveners, so probably some cornstarch or something like that. And that's so important. You know, Popeye's worked with flour mills to source the flour that had that exact percentage that they need of proteins and all that to make that crispy bite. You were talking about, in general, how good the sandwich was. Part of the reason why they ran out so quickly in the beginning was they were working with a specific chicken provider and they only ordered a certain amount. So when they ended there, they had to go back and find another chicken provider that would give them that right taste, that right chicken breast. So that's how much goes into making these things. But I digress back to the crispiness and kind of the commercialization of it because it's got to look just as good as it's going to taste, especially when you're doing this for commercials and sound and all that. Yeah, I loved talking to the creative team because 
they love the Popeyes so much and they're kind of like, they turn it into this whole beauty pageant. And my favorite thing about Popeyes is they call the kind of little gnarly crummy bits of fried skin that come off. They call those crispy poppies. <laughs> uh, and so in the photo, you want to make sure you see lots of crispy poppies. So just like this extremely textured surface of the chicken. And they play with light and shadows to make sure you really see all of those crispy poppies popping out. And then you have the bun, which should look sturdy, but the chicken kind of squishes down on it just a little bit. And then the, kind of a creamy sauce that comes in, but it can't overpower because that would make it look soggy. The pickle is just thick enough. And of course, they like measure the chicken. It has to be a very specific measurement of thickness. All of those details in what you see in the ad are deliberate. And food stylists have paintbrushes with oil that they're glistening onto the chicken. They're tweezing little crispy poppies into spots that maybe got a bear. So You're making me hungry, but at the same time, just describing the crispiness, I can imagine myself You know, when I was eating that chicken sandwich, I mean, there's so much that goes into all of this. And, you know, obviously we're recording a podcast right now. Talk about the sound because you got to spend time in the sound lounge. Where was the sound lounge out? I lost it in here. Was it for Frito-Lays? So the sound lounge is a uh, sound effects studio in New York, and they actually do sound effects from movies, TV shows. And I was talking to them specifically about food ads they do. So they're an independent sound effect company. So when I went out, that was one of my favorite days of reporting because I didn't know anything about this world. It's so Hollywood and I'm mostly in the kitchen. So in the sound lounge, they have these booths where they record the sounds for ads. And in the story, I talk about a tater tot ad they were doing. So they record all of the food noises that are going to be amplified in the ad. And they just sit in front of a big microphone, bite into a tater tot maybe a few times, and then they edit and amplify and bring out and clean up that sound. So it's this perfect crisp because people do not like to hear mouth noises. Any chewing, any sense of saliva is disgusting to consumers, <laughs> right, right. Uh, which Frito-Lay told me. And maybe it's sort of obvious to the rest of us, like, oh, yeah, that's gross. I hate when the person in the cubicle next to me is, is chomping down. But yeah, so that's what the sound lunch does. And, then, and they did this tater tot ad and they sent the sound to the food company and the company might say it doesn't sound crispy enough. And in the tater tot case, they had to double fry the tater tots to make them extra crispy sounding for that perfect bite. And you hear it in the ad and it's just like so surreal and shattering, almost like glass. I love that. I mean, this is just kind of a look from top to bottom, how they manufacture crispy foods, make it look good and then make it sound good, especially when it comes to the advertising so that people want to go get it. And humans, you know, we love this stuff. It's a multi-sensory experience from the sight, the taste, the feel, the sound. When you crunch on things, it goes in through your bones and up to your head. You know, everybody loves that stuff. So it's just a fun look on this. You must have had a blast reporting on the story. Well, I went through a lot of potato chips for research, let me tell you. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Alex Beggs, staff writer at Bon Appetit. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Bye. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.